Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Hi, this is Pastor Brandon. Before we continue with today's message, I just want to let you know we had a little issue with the audio. It is very, very echoey for this message. Uh, We did fix the issue for future recordings, uh, but for this one, we just missed it, and we apologize for that. Still, I hope you're able to listen and to make it through, Um, and in any case, thanks for listening. Uh, Okay, here's today's message. 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord, praise be to God. Here's Pastor Brandon. (laughs) Thanks, Terry. I grew up in the church, spent my, been in the church my whole life. Um, when I was really young, we bounced around a lot, um, just for one reason or another, we'd bounce around churches, and uh, until I was, I don't know, 11 or so, and then we landed in a church, um, and it was a great church, it was a wonderful church, I love my home church, love the people that I got to know growing up there, um, I was heavily involved in the youth group, it's where I received the call to ministry, I was leading, I was teaching, but my youth group suffered from the same malady that almost all youth groups in the United States have suffered with forever, and that is we were a total hype culture. Youth group, if you didn't grow up in a church youth group, um, especially in the like late 80s through the now, um, you don't really get this, but youth groups are just entirely about hype, almost always. They're about getting really, really, really excited and having fun for Jesus. And sometimes the for Jesus isn't like parentheses. Like, we're just having fun. And sometimes the for Jesus is, you know, really big. But if you visited our youth group, you would think that following Jesus was primarily about jumping up and down when you sing and dance and then being really loud about Jesus all the time. And as I grew up and I got to know friends and and, and I matured a bit, I began to ask the question because I got to know introverted people. Like, where was the place for introverts in our youth group? Where was the place for the kids struggling with depression? Where was the place for the person who didn't feel the hype all the time? And I realized my own faith had suffered. Because I'll tell you, like, even in this season of my life right now, I'm not feeling hyped. I'm feeling a little down. I'm struggling personally right now with feeling all the joy that I normally do. And I'm an extremely extroverted, normally very joyful person. But even in this moment in my life, things are coming together, and I don't feel the hype. And the, you, the faith that I grew up with 
that I was instilled with through my youth group, led by very well-meaning, sincere, Jesus-loving, God-honoring people. But the faith that I grew up with didn't have a place for this season of my life. I think for a lot of us, our faith doesn't leave space for the quiet, for the contemplative, especially in our American context. It doesn't leave a space for the times when we feel down or low, or we're not necessarily feeling the hype. We're not necessarily feeling high on Jesus. And the picture that comes to mind of the life of the Christ follower in these verses in 1 Timothy is very different from the hype lifestyle and the hype faith that I grew up with. You see, when we were in those youth groups and we were getting hyped and we were getting high on Jesus and we were getting excited and we were being loud, we were going to be world changers and we were going to change everything and we were going to be different and people were going to notice and we were going to be loud about Jesus and that's what was going to make the difference in people's lives. And even though we all would have said it is the work of God and the Holy Spirit to transform people, we would have said, but your energy matters, your excitement matters. All of your in-your-faceness about Jesus, that's how God's going to change the world. And the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, I think, in that world was diminished. Because so much rided on my excitement and my energy. And Christianity became something for the extroverted and for the expressive and there wasn't room for people who had different personalities or were feeling down or feeling going through difficult seasons. And, and I want to I just want to compare that culture, that hype culture, the energy culture, the like we're high on Jesus culture to this letter from the early church, because I think this spells out the witness of the church in a way that is very foreign for a lot of us. And so early in the church, there were these letters being written back and forth. In fact, most of our New Testament is just letters that a guy named Paul or a group of people that were working with Paul wrote to local churches. But we have tons of other letters from the early years of the church, from the first 300 years of the church. And we have letters from bishops and from leaders and from individuals to, to government leaders, to private individuals, to all kinds of people. And it gives us a glimpse into how Christianity formed and developed and grew in those first years. And here we have this letter from a guy named Mathetes. Now, Mathetes simply means disciple. So we don't know who this person actually was. We have a letter from this disciple of Jesus to a person named Diognetus. And Diognetus seems to be asking questions about Christianity. What are Christians like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so this is the disciple's answer to Diognetus. And this is just a portion of the letter laying out how the Christians live. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in whether it is Greek or foreign. And so the disciples saying, look, you're not going to be able to tell a Christian just by looking. 
You're not going to be telling, be able to tell a follower of Jesus just by how they dress or the language they speak or the way that they go about their lives. It's going to look just like everybody else. Now, in the world where I grew up and you were like, we're going to be different in everything. We're going to be different in every way we do it. Yeah. Like, this doesn't make any sense. But this was the example of the first century was, or the first Christians, was that they, they look like everybody else. So what distinguishes them? This is where the letter goes on. And yet, remember, Matthew Tess has just said, they look like everybody else. You're not going to be able to tell them apart. And yet, there's something here. And yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. That means when they have too many kids to feed, they don't leave the last one out to die. That's what exposure meant. They share their meals, but not their wives. That's an important distinction, okay? Sharing food, not spouses. Just, that's what Christians do, okay? They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they're not understood, they're put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse, deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even then, they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. That's the life that marked out the Christian in those early years. They live in the world, and they're good citizens. And yet, they're not tied to their government. They live in the world, and they're good neighbors. And yet, they recognize that their loyalty transcends the human. They live in the world, and they care, and they love for people. And yet, when they suffer insults, and when they're put down for what they believe and the way that they live, they answer with grace and joy. This is what distinguished those early Christians. Not the demanding of rights, not the reshaping of the world to their vision, but living as good citizens, recognizing their citizen was in heaven, their citizenship was in heaven. Living in the world as good neighbors and recognizing that nothing that this world could throw at them could take away their life in Christ. Living in this world abused and yet gracious lovers of all people. Earlier, the letter had said that Christians don't expose their children, meaning they don't leave them to die if they have too many or they can't care for them. In fact, one of the things that marked out the early church <coughs> was that they would save children from exposure. So it was accepted practice in the early days of the Christian church in the Roman Empire that if you had too many children, you could leave a child to die exposed and not be prosecuted for it. 
because it was better for that child to die than for them to grow up hungry in your home and become either a burden on your neighbors or the community or for the rest of your family to suffer. It was better to have three well-fed, well-cared-for children than four mediocre or meagerly cared-for children. But what Christians would do in this world where that was an acceptable practice is they would go rescue these babies and bring them into their homes. And Christians generally were poor because a lot of them were previously Jewish and had been expelled from the synagogue and they lost their community, so they didn't have the same financial resources that other people had. And if they were Greek, they were out of the temple, they were outside of kind of the public life because public life meant having to worship idols and worship other gods. And so even the former Greek or former Gentile Christians were outside. And so they didn't have the same means as other people. A lot of them were impoverished. And yet they would gladly adopt the babies of their Greek and Jewish counterparts and bring them into their homes and care for them. And they were all cared for because they shared their possessions in common. Because they recognized that if we're going to survive, we've got to share our stuff. We can't be stingy. We can't be looking out for number one. We've got to be looking out for the community. This was the witness of the early church. They didn't get hyped. They didn't need the, they didn't need the smoke and mirrors. They, they didn't need the lights. The world looked at this community of Christians and said, you guys are weird, and you're different, but you're not obnoxious. We live in a world where in order to be heard, it seems like you have to be obnoxious, or you have to come up with the thing that's going to be seen. There's a, there's a trend in graphic design recently called brutalism, and it's because in social media, you know, when you're scrolling along, if you just see text, most people don't stop and read text anymore. Right? But if you keep scrolling, the, the principle of marketing is you got to stop the scroll. Only now people are used to seeing images in their news feeds too, so they scroll past them too. So now you need the most jarring imagery you can to put into your feed. And so in graphic design, it's all about mismatching fonts and color schemes and making things stand out. And it's called brutalism, not because it's like brutal imagery, but because these things don't match. They don't work together. They don't flow. They're not aesthetically pleasing, but they make you stop the scroll and read the post. That's the kind of world we live in. We live in a brutalistic world, a world where in order to be seen and heard, you have to be as obnoxious as possible. You have to be as loud as possible. You have to drown out all the other voices because we have so many voices. Only the witness of this early Christian church was not the obnoxious. It was not the brutalistic. It was quite the opposite. It was living quietly, faithful lives. And in a world like this early Roman Empire, in, in a world like this, the early church was in the middle of the Roman Empire, where you've got everything you could want right there too. This world looked a lot like ours. There were all kinds of things on offer. Every kind of pleasure you could want was available to you in the cities. Christians didn't say, we need to out-compete. We need to out-market. Christians said, we need to out-love. We need to live lives of quiet, faithful love, and that, above all, will gain the attention of our neighbors. And it did. And it transformed the world. The quiet witness of the early 
church, loving their neighbors and radically saving babies from garbage heaps and welcoming in people who had been rejected by the most licentious society that had ever existed at the time. Christians won the day through their quiet, faithful love. And how different is that from the hyped-up Christian culture in which we live now? How different is that from smoke and lights and entertainment? Now, there's a place for all those things. I enjoy a good concert. I love going to a conference with all of the the stuff. I, I enjoy it. It's fun. But that's not our witness. We can do those things. We can enjoy them. We can get hyped up. We can get energetic. And sometimes we need that little injection. But that can't be the normal tone of our lives. It will exhaust us. It will burn us out. It will ruin us. And it will make us ultimately consumers just want the feels and don't want to contribute. And so we turn now to this passage in 1 Timothy 2 because I think that's what is being pointed at here. Paul is writing to Timothy, the leader of the church in this city called Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city. It was one of the most important cities in Asia Minor. It housed multiple large temples, particularly to the goddess Artemis, it hosted these monstrous, beautiful baths that were famous throughout the Mediterranean. This gorgeous, monstrous library that was also famed throughout the Mediterranean. Ephesus was a destination town. You wanted to go visit Ephesus if you could. I still want to go visit Ephesus today. And so Ephesus had a little bit of everything for everybody. And it had a lot of a lot of things for anybody who wanted it. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, who is leading this church in Ephesus, and he told him, as we said last week, first, watch out for false teachers. Watch out for those who will come in and they'll twist the gospel. They'll twist the good news of Jesus. They'll change it ever so slightly. You've got to stay true to the doctrine that I've taught you, Timothy, is what Paul said. And you've got to make sure that the people who are teaching false doctrine in your church don't get a foothold. Kick them out if you have to, but confront them at minimum. Make sure that you're teaching the truth, but doing it for the purpose of love. Because teaching falsehoods about God is the most unloving thing we can do. It leads to false hope. And so that's where Paul begins. And now in chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul's going to move into his instructions concerning the church. How should people behave within the church? What are the priorities of the church? Or rather, what's the priority of the church? And so Paul begins chapter 2 with the most important thing that the church does. The primary calling of the church. And what do you imagine that would be? Some would say evangelism. That's the most important thing. Some would say holiness. Being personally, morally upright and pure and holy. Some might say being happy about Jesus. Joy, excitement. There are any number of things that people within our churches might say are the most important thing that the church does. But Paul actually begins here with the number one duty of the church. And the number one duty of every Christian and of every church is to pray. 
very first thing, the thing of primary importance for every Christian in every church is prayer. Listen carefully. If we neglect to pray, we give up every right to expect transformation in our lives or in the world. We can do all the other things, but if we don't pray, we forfeit our expectation of transformation in ourselves or the world. Prayer is the first order of business for the church. It is the first order of business for the Christian. Prayer is our bedrock built on Jesus. We pray before anything, during anything, and after anything, and everything. Paul is driving that home here at the beginning when he says, first of all, of first importance, number one on your agenda, Timothy, as you lead this church, the first thing that you do and you teach people to do is to pray. I urge, Paul says. He's not recommending. He's urging, pressing. I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. And then he goes on to clarify what everyone means. Because just in case you miss the meaning of the word everyone, Paul wants to make sure you get it. For kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodliness, godliness. <clears throat> so, Paul says, first order is to pray for everyone. Now, a lot of us are good at praying for our neighbors. We're praying for people we like, praying for people we love. We're good at praying for the needs of our family members, of the church family. We're good at praying for stuff that matters to us. Paul just wants to broaden that scope. I want you to pray for everybody. Absolutely everybody. Pray for those in authority. Pray for the kings. Pray for the governors. Pray for the the prefects and pray for the treasurers and pray for the, the senators and pray for everybody in any position of authority in your society. I want you to pray for all of them. Now here's what prayer doesn't mean. When the Bible tells us to pray for those in authority, it is not saying that you affirm everything they do or every decision they make. Or that everything they do and every decision they make is right or good. Even in Romans 13, when the Apostle Paul tells us that all authority in heaven is given, or that all authority on earth is given from heaven, that God has given us all the authorities, he's not saying that all the authorities do will be right or good, or that we should affirm it all. He's just telling us, keep them in mind, pray for them. If someone exercises authority, it is they are doing so as image bearers of God. The only reason we can bear authority is because we are image bearers of God. We are made in the image of God. And so all authority naturally comes from God, in whose image we are made. And so we pray that they use their authority in a way that is consistent with the kingdom of God, with the values of the kingdom of God, that's consistent with flourishing for all people, that's consistent with justice, 
for all people, we pray that those in authority will use their authority in a way that seeks the peace and prosperity and flourishing of absolutely everyone under their authority. But when they fail to do that, we still pray for them. When they fail to meet that standard, we continue to pray for them, to pray that they would use their authority well. Pray that God would give them the wisdom to use their authority well. And here's why. Paul begins by saying, first of all, pray for everyone. And he gives us three reasons why we are to pray for everyone. First is so that you may lead a quiet life, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We pray for everyone so that we can live tranquil quiet lives of godliness and dignity. With regard to the kings and the authorities, what Paul is praying, we're asking for prayers for is, pray they leave us alone, just so that we can be godly. Pray that the authorities would just leave the church alone, so that we can follow Jesus and be faithful in our lives to him. Pray that they don't notice you. Pray that they don't look down and, and see you doing something and want to come down on you. And elsewhere, Paul will say that Christians ought to live lives that are better than the law of the land in which they live, so that the authorities have nothing to hold against you. That's what happened in that letter that I read just a minute ago, that letter to Diognetus, where he said, they live in every land as good citizens, but their way of life transcends the law of their land. Be better than the law requires you to be. Be better than this cultural standard around you requires you to be. Because Jesus is better, and he's our standard. And so Paul here is saying, pray for those in authority so that you can go about your life following Jesus without interference, without being bothered. And so to the authorities, he's praying for them to leave the Christians alone. To the Christians, he's saying, don't make waves. Don't be obnoxious. Don't try to push for your own way. Live your life better than the law, and point to Jesus. So pray for the authorities so that you can live a quiet and tranquil life in godliness and dignity. That should be our goal. Now, there will be times and places where we can't do that. There were been times and places in church history where Christians couldn't live a quiet and tranquil life. Because the governing authorities were coming down on them. Again, that was part of the letter that we read. Where Christians in this time and place were maligned. They were put down. They were persecuted. There have been times of persecution. We do not live in one. Not where we are. But there have been many times in our past as the church where Christians have not been allowed to lead a quiet and tranquil life. But where it is possible, where there is the support or at least the ignorance of the government to leave us alone? Our goal ought to be to lead quiet and tranquil, tranquil lives, reflecting Jesus in everything that we do. We don't need to try to grab attention. We don't need to try and, and force the world and, and mold it to our liking. God will do that. Jesus will do that. We lead faithfully quiet lives loving one another, loving our neighbors, serving one another, 
caring for the poor and oppressed, reaching out and sharing what we have with one another to make sure that we all have at least what we need. Our goal ought to be a quiet and tranquil life where we can follow Jesus faithfully and let him be the light that shines from us. I've still got these lamps out here. I haven't put them back on the wall yet. But the theme for this year is the light of the world to remind us that we are the light of the world. And you notice, right, all the lamps are different. Different shapes, different sizes, different shades. But they all have the same bulb because I made sure they all have the same bulb so I can make this analogy. They all have the same bulb. They all shine the same light. Regardless of who we are, what shape we are, we all shine the same light. But we don't control the light. We can try and snuff it out. We can try and put it under a bushel. We can try and hide it. But we all shine forth the same light. And it's the light that does the work. It's the light that shines in the darkness, not us. Whoa. I'm going to give Prentice a heart attack up here. It's the light that shines. So we don't have to be loud. We don't have to make our stand. We don't have to be obnoxious. We lead quiet lives and allow the light to do its work and shine into the dark places. When Christians went to those trash heaps to rescue exposed babies, they were shining light into the darkest place of their society. They didn't put a sign over themselves when they did it. They didn't have a group of people praising them as they walked to the trash heap. They didn't make sure that all the world saw what they were doing. In another part of the letter to Diognetus, the disciple who's writing to Diognetus says, when they have a funeral, Christians quietly walk along with the family and with the, with the body. And then they go about their day. They don't wail. They don't make a big show of it. Because they know that person's going to be resurrected, and they don't need the attention of all the world on them. This is the ideal for the Christian life. That we would lead quiet lives and allow the light to shine. And allow the light to do the work. And not put the burden on ourselves of transforming the world. But allow the light of Jesus to do it. Allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. So that's the first reason. Pray for everybody, especially those in authority, so you can lead a quiet and tranquil life of godliness. Of faithfulness. And then in verse 3, he goes on. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, in many of our evangelical churches and in many of much of our evangelical world, we would read quiet and tranquil life and assume that if we live quiet and tranquil lives, then people won't hear the gospel and won't be saved. We would pit these two things against each other in much of our evangelical world. And yet here, the Apostle Paul knits the two together and says, you ought to pray for the freedom to lead a quiet and tranquil life because God wants everyone to be saved. Because God wants everyone to know him. We pray for everyone so that we can lead quiet and tranquil lives and because God wants everyone to be saved. It is through our faithful prayer and faithful living that the gospel of Jesus will go out, the light will shine, and people will know God our Savior. God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of 
the truth. This is why we pray. We pray because that's what God wants. And that's what God will use to bring people to him. In the church, we believe that everyone is born a sinner. Everyone is born alienated from God. And not only alienated from God, but even hostile to God. Hostile to the good work of our good creator. That we are opposed to God from birth. It's the nature of our world. It's the nature of what we call the fall. The fact that we are sinful. We are separated from God from birth. And God wants nothing more than to bridge that gap and draw us in away from that separation. To bring us close. To unite us into an intimate relationship with him. That is the good news of Jesus. That God, who was our enemy, has come to us in Jesus Christ so that we can be made one with him, so that we can know our God, have our sin washed away, erased, and be united to him. That is God's deepest desire for every human on the planet, that we would know him. And again, in an evangelical world, we assume that that happens primarily through our speech. Primarily through our speaking the gospel. And it does happen through our sharing of the gospel. It does happen through the words, through the spoken word of God. That's how salvation comes to us. But it does not happen apart from prayer. It will not happen apart from prayer. Prayer is where we begin. If we go out to share the gospel of Jesus and to evangelize and to speak the truth of Jesus, having not prayed, we are crippling ourselves. It begins with prayer. Paul is saying we pray for everyone because God desires the salvation of everyone. And the best thing you can possibly do for another human being is to pray for them. Before anything else, the best thing you can do is to pray for another person. Pray for their good. Pray for their well-being. Pray, most importantly, that they would know God their Savior. That they would know Jesus Christ. That they would be saved. That they would follow Him. It all begins with prayer. Prayer lays the foundation. It tills the soil. It gets things moving. And don't ask me how, because prayer isn't magic. It's not as though if you pray the right words, this thing will happen. Any book you're reading that says, if you pray this way, this will happen, is a lie, and you should burn it. I'm not even joking. Anything that, that lines up prayer as though it's a magic spell, or anyone who tells you, here are the seven steps to effective prayer, that's not outlined in Scripture anywhere. Or who says, this is the key to having your prayers heard. That's not in scripture anywhere. Prayer is not a magic spell. There's no one-to-one -one correlation between if I say these words, God will do this. On the other hand, we do know that prayer moves things. Prayer moves the heart of God. Yes, it does. God has commanded us to pray, God wants us to pray, and God responds when we pray. 
And when we pray before we do things, especially before we share the gospel or before we start talking with someone about Jesus, it tills the soil. It begins to to prepare the ground. It gets it ready. And if we as Christians do anything without prayer, we are crippling our own efforts. We're halting ourselves because we haven't laid the foundation. We haven't tilled the soil. We haven't done the prep work. God works through prayer, and it's a mystery. We don't know exactly how. We don't know why God has set it up this way. But God, in his sovereign will and his sovereign grace, has. And what should astound us most is that God has given us the privilege of prayer in the first place. That God has said, come to me. Come to me and pray, and I will do stuff. Come to me and pray, and I will act on your behalf. Come to me and pray, and I will put my purposes to work. Come to me and simply ask. We are told directly in Scripture, you don't have because you didn't ask. And how many times have we griped about the not having when we've never asked? How many times have we griped about our friends or our family or or someone we love not yet knowing Jesus, not following Jesus, but we've never asked for it? We've been banging our heads up against the wall because we think that we're sharing the good news of Jesus and they're not picking it up, but we've never prayed for them. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. Prayer is the great privilege of the church that moves the hand of God according to God's own will and purposes. But we only have this privilege because Jesus has given it to us. And that's where Paul lands here in verses 5 and 6 in this, this doxology, this statement of doctrine that will, that will form the foundation for the rest of this letter. Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. Paul is rooting everything here, saying we only get the privilege of prayer because of Jesus. And God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of him because there's only one of him. And there's only one way to him. Church, there is only one God. One. And there's only one way to God. And that's Jesus Christ. God knows this. Of course he does. We know this. And that's why we pray, so that people can know the one God through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. And it's only through that mediator that we get the privilege of praying at all. It's only through that mediator, Jesus, that we get the promise that God will move when we pray. This is the promise of Scripture. Now here... Paul names Jesus first as mediator and second as ransom. Mediator means he stands in the middle between us. We have to recognize first that I have no right to stand in the presence of God. There's nothing in me that gives me a special right to be able to stand in God's presence, in his holiness, and assume I'm going to be okay. In fact, we see the opposite over and over and over, where people unworthily step into God's presence and they're destroyed by his holiness. 
And so between us and God, between us and the Holy Father, is Jesus Christ, standing as a mediator to reconcile us to God. And he can only do that because he is the ransom who has paid our way. He is the one who has come and paid the debt for us so that we can enter into God's presence. And Paul is saying, pray for everyone so that they'll know the mediator and they too can stand in the presence of God. Pray for everyone because their idols won't save them. Pray for everyone because their pagan religion won't save them. Pray for everyone because their science won't save them. Pray for everyone because whatever they're putting their hope in that is not Jesus Christ is useless and cannot save. Pray for everyone because there is only one God and one mediator and one ransom paid. Nothing else ever died for you so you could be one with God. Nothing else ever died for you so that you could be intimately connected to God, our Savior. Pray for everyone because there's only one hope. Jesus Christ, the Savior. Today, do you know your one hope? I mean, if we're going to pray for other people to know this, we've got to know this. We've got to hold on to this. If we're going to pray this for other people, that they would know Jesus Christ, the mediator, that they would know the one God and the one ransom that has been paid so that we can be united to him, then we've got to know him ourselves. We've got to grasp on to Jesus Christ the one mediator between God and man, the one who went to the cross and let all the evil forces and powers of the world destroy his body, and in doing so, destroy our sin to free us from everything that separates us from God. Jesus is the only God who ever stepped down from heaven and said, I will give myself for you. I will give myself completely so that you can know God, your creator, so you can know God, your father, so you can be one with him and you can be united to each other. Church, we must pray that our neighbors and our friends and our family would know this mediator, that they would know Jesus Christ so they can know God, the father, but we must know him first. And if today you have not given yourself to Jesus, if today you've not, if you've stepped in here and you've never before, or, or, or it's been a long time, or, or you've lost the connection to it, said, Jesus, please wash away my sin. Jesus, please make me holy. Jesus, unite me to God. Today's the day. Today's the moment for salvation. Today is the moment to know Jesus Christ. To know that your sin is once forever washed away and you can be united to God, your Savior. Today is the day for new life for all of us. And so I'm going to pray for us and I'm going to invite you to pray. First, for yourself. That you would know God, your Savior. That you would know Jesus Christ. If you have repenting to do, sorry for my sin, Lord, help me to, to walk in your way. Now is the moment to do it. 
Today's the day to commit yourself to Jesus Christ, your Savior. And then, and then, allow the Holy Spirit to bring to mind those family and friends of yours who you know don't know Jesus. To name them by name. To pray for them specifically. That they would know Jesus Christ and God their Savior. And so, take a moment of quiet and pray to know Jesus and pray that others would know him too. Father, according to the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, we pray. We pray that we would know you and be reconciled to you. And we pray for these who have been named, for our family and friends, for our loved ones who don't know you, Jesus. We pray that they too, through the witness of our quiet and faithful lives, through the witness of our words speaking the truth of Jesus, and Lord, through the work of your Holy Spirit enacted through prayer, that they too would come to know you and follow you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.